You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. Reality Check Radio. Good morning and welcome back to Counterculture here on Reality Check Radio. Of course, you are with Marie. And this morning, I have a most excellent guest. And he's most excellent because he's His Excellency, Hungarian Ambassador Jolt Hedeshi. Thank you very much, Marie. Thank you very much for having me on this program. Oh, so wonderful to have you. And I've been wanting to talk to you because Hungary is a country that has fascinated me for a long time, and particularly with an interest that I have in politics, because while the rest of the world is looking outward and globally, Hungary has actually achieved great success by looking inward. So tell me a little bit more about you, how you ended up in New Zealand first, because you were Minister for Foreign Trade and Affairs, and now you're here. So there's a story here for us to unpack, Schott. <laughs> well, yes. Let's 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 start with the, the personal details. Mm-hmm. Um, indeed, um, I had a career of 33 years now. I think in the civil service, it was kind of half and half. Uh, I divided it up uh, between national security and uh, diplomacy. When it comes to diplomacy, a couple of my friends would say that I have spent too much time in the United States. Altogether, in three different postings, I have spent there 14 years, okay? So just before I came here to New Zealand in 2021, I finished a nine-year stint in the United States, which means that I was the deputy ambassador in New York at our permanent mission to the United Nations for four years. And then I had uh, five years in Washington as the deputy ambassador there. I started with uh, President Obama. Uh, four years with President Trump, and I finished with President Biden. And then in 2021, I was asked by the minister to come and become the second ambassador of Hungary to New Zealand. This is basically the short story. How are you finding? I mean, because it's almost two years you've been here. Is, is that right? End of 21? Well, two, right? two and a half, if you will. We arrived in September, so that was still COVID times. We had two weeks of MIQ in in Auckland, but after that, when I was able to come down to to travel to to Wellington, I just realized that life was much, much, much freer here in in Wellington and the rest of the part of New Zealand and in Europe and, and the United States. Of course, in Auckland, there were these big lockdowns, but diplomatically, when it comes to our profession, we were completely free and we were able to interact with each other and all the ministries. So it was a very good change. What have been some of the observations that you've seen having moved from the United States to New Zealand and seeing both these English-speaking Western democracies under multiple presidencies in the US? I mean, do you you see greater similarities or are there quite distinctive differences? Between the two countries, look, it's kind of dangerous, choppy waters. I cannot really comment on internal politics and foreign policies of any of these two countries. So let me try to stick to the personal. I have to tell you that after spending so many years in the United States, it was very easy to settle in New Zealand. Okay, When it comes to culture, when it comes to people's being easygoing, friendly, approachable. I didn't really find too much of a difference. Uh, Of course, it helps if you can find the same food staple, the the same food items uh, here in New Zealand that you find in the United States. Uh, Family was happy with that too. But all in all, I have to tell you that the two societies are, I would say, very similar. 
if I can say a word, uh, not in my capacity as an ambassador, but as, let's say, my personal capacity, I think that the big difference here in New Zealand compared to the United States that your society and your political parties are still able to discuss things with each other people with each other and so on and so on. So uh, I think that uh, New Zealand is lucky in a sense that the level of divisiveness that time to time we see in the United States is not really present here. And I really hope that you will be able to keep it this way. Mm, so do we. So do we, considering uh, at the moment we've got three of them trying to hash out a, an agreement for a new government. So very much so. So Hungary, of course, is a country that's fascinating because you politically have been on a tremendous journey over the last 30 years. It's, I, you know, <laughs> it's still a, I mean, in my living memory, you know, you, you've gone from communism to socialism and in inverted commas. You know, run me through some of the things that, particularly now that Hungary is doing, that it makes mm -hmm. it quite an outlier with Central European nations? Mm -hmm. Well, there is a lot to unpack here, if you will. So if you don't mind, I will have to go back a little bit in history, like Absolutely. 1,100 years, if you don't mind. Oh, <laughs> right. But I will be quick. This is important to understand where we are and, and what we are doing. Of course, you have kind of alluded to the fact that before the regime change in 1989, we were part of the communist bloc, the socialist bloc, right? And a lot of New Zealanders, when they hear about Hungary, when they talk about Hungary, they would relate to that period. They would understand that period. They were living through that period. And of course, this is how we understand the word. Uh, it's easier for us to think about things that we lived through. But it is only a very short period for Hungary. This is how we consider it. So basically, one of the similarities between the two countries, New Zealand and Hungary, is that the Hungarian tribes arrived to the Carpathian Basin around the same time when the first Wakas arrived to New Zealand. So 895, uh, when we arrived to the Carpathian Basin. And uh, at that time, we, have, we had seven tribes. So there were seven Hungarian tribes arriving uh, to where Hungary is now. And these tribes were pagan. There were a couple of visionary leaders. Uh, our first king, King Stephen, who became our patron saint later, he decided, and his father actually decided, to convert us to Christianity. And this is how we became a Christian country around the end of the first millennia. And why is that important? Because those kind of Judeo-Christian values ticked with us, okay? Central Europe, you talked about Central Europe, it's a tough place to survive and thrive for 1,100 years. So you have to have values and principles pretty strong. And of course, I mean, I don't want to go through, the, go through the whole history, but the fact is that Hungary has been occupied several times throughout its history. Uh, the Mongols came twice, uh, then the Turks occupied Hungary for 150 years. We had this kind of asymmetrical relationship with the Austro within the Austro-Hungarian monarchy, and then, of course, uh, the 40-plus years of communism. And I can tell you that throughout those years and sometimes decades or centuries of occupation, these kind of Judeo-Christian values and principles that kept us alive. And whenever we were free, we belonged to the West. We always went back to these values and principles. 
And it's interesting that you mentioned the Central European countries because the Central European countries shared the same faith. If we talk about the so-called Visegrad four countries, Poland, Hungary, Czech Republic, and Slovakia, these countries were independent countries and then became part of the socialist bloc, right? But the interesting thing that these countries have already come together as early as 305. There were kings, the Polish king, the Hungarian king, and the Czech king came together. And this they, they kind of put together this uh, Visegrad alliance, as we, we call it. And of course, after the regime change, these countries revived, the four countries revived this Visegrad alliance with the ultimate goal to get into NATO and European Union. And you can tell that this alliance was and is successful because those goals have been met. Now, what happened during those 40 years, 40 plus years uh, during the communist system, our independence, our liberty, self-determination was taken away, right? So those issues are always more important for countries and nations that have lost those values time to time. And, and this is why you have seen not only Hungary, but all these Central European countries being a little bit more conservative, trying to get back, trying to build back what they have lost during those 45 years. And I think many of the traits that you see when it comes to Hungary, the conservatism, the emphasis on family, on family values, on religion, on nationhood, comes from that reason, comes because of that reason. And, and why do I say that? It's an interesting thing. It's not only about self-determination and sovereignty, but also it's about a kind of social experiment, or if you will, a socialist experiment. During the communist rule, that was the first time when we felt that the political powers want to ensure that the importance of nations, the importance of national identity declines. And instead of that comes the so-called socialist principle, where your nationality is not as important as the the principle, the cause, the, the cause of socialism, the cause of communism, right? And we live happily ever after under a centralized rule that was at that time Moscow. Frankly speaking, we tried it for 40 plus years. And we do understand that this is a dead end. It is a, a societal, economic, political dead end. You don't go there. I mean, we have tried it. We have done that. It's not workable, okay? During the same... 40 plus years, the West, that was the traditional founding fathers of the European Union, in the same time, they have become much less conservative, right? This is what we have seen. In the 90s, when we started our uh, journey towards the European Union, I think the understanding of the founding fathers were, was that these newcomers, these countries coming out of socialism, would uh, somehow do a time travel and join them in this less conservative, more centralized idea. And I think that was a great misunderstanding on both sides. Uh, uh, Hungary and these other countries were not ready to do that. They were just got out of an abusive system, which was communism. They wanted to rebuild their own national identity. They want to relieve that or that national identity. Conservative values were again cherished, right? Mm -hmm. 
And at the same time, we have seen those values being put on the back burner in some of the Western countries. Okay. Do Hungarians from that time, do they look at the march, particularly in nations such as France, Germany, and to a lesser extent, the United States, and even down here in New Zealand, do they do they sit back? And I know some people from former communist bloc countries, and they say to me, they look back and they say, we've been here before. We've danced this dance before. So they yes. recognise they recognize the behaviours for what they actually are, which is sort of socialism and con- communism dressed up into a different costume with different names. Marie, that is a very excellent point. And indeed, I was baffled. I think I can use that word. I was baffled when I saw that, for example, communism is much respected in universities. And there are these groups who would advocate for that in the United States and so on and so on. And I always wanted to cry out that, please don't. Uh, please don't. Uh, this this system is responsible for so many deaths. Uh, this system is responsible for so many injured uh, lives and crises in society and so on and so on. You should learn your lesson from others' mistakes. If you take a look at what happened during communism, we were put into this block not by a Hungarian referendum, right? This was decided by a couple of conferences including Yalta and Potsdam. So this is how we became part of uh, the communist system. And people should have realized, I mean, the, the free word, if you will, should have realized that there is a problem with this system. When first Hungary stood up in 56, 1956 with the Hungarian revolution and freedom fight, then when the, the Czechoslovakian at that time, this is how we call them, the Czechoslovakian people rose in 68. And then, of course, the Solidarność movement in Poland, starting from the 80s, right? They should have seen it that, look, there is a major problem with the system. And there is a major problem with a system that tries to take away nationality, national identity, and tries to substitute it with something else. I think that this is a lesson that we learn the hard way. And we really hope that that other people will learn it the easy way. Now, when it comes to principles like open society and the, the liberal thinking that puts less emphasis on nations, when we are more cautious about those, uh, those ideas like migration, tinkering with uh, the traditional values related to family and so on and so on, I think most of our misgivings come from that socialist era that we lived through. We have seen similar ideas and we know that that does not work. So when we talk about the different ideas about migration, the different ideas about the future of Europe, this kind of historical lesson, this kind of historical background that I have explained to you, it gives the background for our position. At this moment, if I may say that, I think at this moment, Europe is at crossroads. And there are two issues that are actually interrelated. One is what kind of Europe do we want? And of course, some of the ideas are that we we wouldn't, since there is a crisis and Europe is ineffective, we want to cede more powers to some kind of a centralized structure, right? This is about the federalism versus sovereignty debate. And then you have another debate, which is to a, to a certain extent related, and, and that is about the principles and values. 
the liberalism versus conservatism debate. And, you know, with regard to the first one, we have already talked about it. I think that it is very clear that uh, most of the newcomer countries, the countries that joined the European Union after 1990, the 10 newcomer countries have their own misgivings with regard to giving more power to the centralized countries. And I cannot talk about, I, I cannot talk on, the, on behalf of them, but I can talk about on behalf of Hungary. The Hungarian position is very clear. There is a very good division of labor between the European Union and the nation states, and we don't want to cede more powers to the European Union. We think Hungary, the Hungarian government thinks that strong nations make the European Union stronger. So this is one of the, the issues. And of course, the, the other issue that we have talked about is the relativization of certain values related to religion, conservatism, conservatism and family and, and gender and so on and so on. We, we can also talk about that. And of course, migration, uh, I am coming back to this issue time to time, which is also a big sticking point between different European uh, nations, a big well, point of so contention. Let's, let's look at migration and immigration. Mm. Unlike many nations within Europe, you do actually have a rigid border. Uh, yes and no, if you will. It's a very interesting approach that you are coming from. Why do I say that? Because it's very intriguing. At least I find it intriguing, hopefully listeners too. Uh, let's talk a little bit about migration and then let's talk about borders. With regard to migration, again, there is this big difference between a couple of countries in Europe. Some of the Western countries, our Western friends, think that they do know that they have a, a problem with an aging society. They have no workforce no people to pay for pension and so on and so on. So they think that migration could be an answer to that. And in principle, I think it's uh, it's an idea. In principle, it might work. As far as Hungary is concerned, we don't believe in that. And the reason is that we have seen countries that are much more capable, they have more capacity, they are richer than Hungary, grappling with this problem, uh, meaning that they were not really successful in integrating people who migrated to these host countries. And instead of solving problems, they have actually created another set of problems, including uh, issues related to safety, issues related to you know, the emergence of parallel societies, societal tension, if you will. At a certain time, at a certain level, migration at least this is what Hungary believes in, can change the societal setup of a country, can change the, the values and the principles that we believe in and that we think that kind of kept us safe in the last 1100 years. Having said that, let me just touch upon this. We also have the same problem. I mean, Hungary also has an aging society, right? Basically, the Hungarian government does not believe that migration is an answer to, to those societal questions. Uh, we also have in Hungary the same problems that uh, the Western society has, which is declining uh, population, low fertility rate. And we found another answer to those problems, which is better family policy. So we don't think that we should kind of import the problems uh, that come with migration, but we could start a set of policies, if you will, a complex set of policies that would make sure that in Hungary, the fertility rate goes up 
families are supported. Uh, the question of whether or not to bear a child is not a financial issue anymore. And this is what we are doing. We are spending, the Hungarian government uh, has spent more than 5% of the GDP. Uh, Which is for, a sig- significantly more than your defence budget, is it well, not? That is correct. That is correct. Our defence budget is more than 2% at this moment. But we think that uh, making sure that we have a nation to defend is also important. And the only way you can make sure that you have a nation that you want to protect is to have uh, enough children and the next generation and the next generation. So, of course, I mean... Our fertility rate was bismal. We had 1.2% 10 years ago. We are at 1.6% at this moment. It is doable. I mean, it's still not the ideal 2.2% that we would like to achieve, but we see a very good trend. And we see not only the fertility rate going up, but also divorces going down, marriages, the number of marriages going up, And we also see the number of abortions declining significantly. We have not changed. By the way, we have not changed the rules on abortions. And we still have a relatively relaxed abortion uh, regulation. So it's not, that is not the reason for the, for the decline of the number of abortions. The reason is that this uh, family policy, this comprehensive family policy, has kicked in and it seems to be working. Of course, after COVID and with the war in our neighborhood in Ukraine, the numbers are, you know, sliding again, but we do hope that that these numbers are, the slide is is temporary and we can go back to this kind of Well, I just wanted to cover for our listeners a few things on that. So in that family Mm. policy, um, the numbers I've got here, 5.5% of GDP, more, um, more than three times of what you currently spend on your military budget. What's interesting about your family policy is that it's allotted a generous financial benefit including two years of maternity leave and childcare allowances for working mothers that choose to stay at home with their children before they enter school. Married couples who start a family also qualify for low fixed mortgage rates and other benefits. But this was the one that really interested me is that mothers who have four or more children earn themselves a lifetime exemption from paying tax. (laughs) That is true. You have not mentioned, but there is another interesting piece of tax uh, allowance, which is related to the younger generation. So people who work until the age of 25, they don't have to pay taxes. Wow. So that that really encourages them to stay within within Hungary then, doesn't it? Except because in this country, most young people will work or get degrees. And then those first few years, they often travel and leave New Zealand at that time. Yes. That would encourage young Hungarians to stay and establish themselves. Well, this is the idea, exactly. So uh, the idea is that, you know, when you start your career, you are not a top earner, right? But you have your needs, and those needs actually surpass the needs of the older generation. You want to have a house, you want to establish a family, you want to have kids, and so on and so on. So the best way to ensure that is that if you earn a certain amount of money, the government, the, the, the state is not taking it away, right? Mm-hmm. So this is this is something. But also there are a lot of non-monetary incentives. I mean, yes, last year alone, the couples and families were able to retain 5 billion New Zealand dollars through these tax allowances and everything else. But then, of course, the other set of these incentives and measures are not financial, meaning that, for example, we have a very flexible system with regard to who goes 
on uh, uh, to maternity care. So actually, it, if, if the mother wants to continue working, it could be the father who would take a leave and get a certain amount of money by taking care of the, the newborn. But then we went one step further. So actually now it's uh, also the, the grandfather or the grandmother who could go for this option and could take care of the kids, uh, get a certain amount of money for that by supporting the family. So the idea was that we create a very flexible system uh, for mothers who want to stay at home, they could stay at home. For mothers who want to go back to work, they can go back to work. Make sure that the burden is not higher, the burden is not heavier than it is necessary. Of course, it's, it's, always, a, it's always a burden to have kids, but the idea is that it should be rewarded uh, by, by the state. And this is what uh, the government is trying to do. Yes, but by bringing the grandparents into play, it also means that you are having children raised by their families. Right. And not sort of passed out to the state and to childcare while the parents right. are working. Yes. So, Mary, this is correct. Uh, this is one of the ideas, keeping the kids, having them in the family. But having said that, the government also realized that we have a problem with the capacity of childcare facilities. So we actually, the government actually stepped up in that regard to uh, they are building kindergartens in a way that would create that opportunity for people who do not necessarily have grandparents or other uh, family type solutions for, for the kids, but also want to go back to work. Yeah. So the tax rate too, I, under, you, I understand you've got a, is it a flat tax rate? Oh, it is. It's 15%. One five. One five, 15 percent. I see I, I'm seeing people buying plane tickets already, Jolt, from here. So how does that go in terms of being able to fund all of this? Because surely, you know, a lot of these social policies don't come cheap. So how do you right. balance the fiscal responsibility from a federal level and you know making sure that you've got that income that to come in and cover all of this? Yes, that's a very good point. Back in the old days, Hungary had a major problem with the so-called grey economy, meaning that, well, first of all, a lot of people didn't work. And secondly, if they worked, they worked semi-legally, let me put it this way. One of the ideas of this government was that we want to make sure that the taxpayer base is widened. And this is what is happening now. Never, ever uh, so many people worked in Hungary than now. So, and of course, if you have a wider taxpayer base, you can allow to cut the level of the tax or the, the percentage of the tax. And this is how it is working, actually, at this moment. If you take a look at Hungary's debt level, the European Union principle is that we should be under 60%, right? And uh, the government started with 80-some percent. We were cutting, cutting, cutting. Then, of course, COVID came, and now the Ukrainian-Russian war uh, came. So now the debt uh, ratio to, compared to the GDP is going up a little bit. But we keep this downward trajectory. And this means, and this is very important also for European Union purposes and the unity of the European Union, we are able to give this support to the families and we are able to work on our fertility rate while also working on our debt ratio and reduce our debt ratio. The plan is even with uh, Russia's war against Ukraine and even with the related disruptions in uh, economic uh, terms, we hope to achieve that 60% by 2030. 
What sort of headwinds are you getting with the conflict between Russia and Ukraine? <laughs> well, that's an interesting question. Uh, some of my New Zealand friends talked about the inflation here which is around 7%, if I am not mistaken. And of course, you have a little bit higher percentage when it comes to foodstuffs and these kind of things. Now, our inflation rate is 22%, so try that, okay? We have been there and done that. I do remember <laughs> when I was much younger, it was uh, floating around there somewhere in the right. days. Yeah. Right. So we, we are working on that too. It is coming down, but not as quickly as or not as fast as we hoped for. It is very clear that, again, half of Europe is distancing itself from another part of the continent. Of course, the trading systems are again collapsing. And we think that there is a legitimate potential for uh, building up some kind of a, a Berlin Wall again, some mm -hmm. kind of a, a wall between parts of uh, the continent, which is which is definitely definitely not the direction that we want to move. This is reality. So uh, at this moment, uh, you see a lot of problems with uh, production lines and production chains, people trying to find and factories trying to find uh, another uh, source for whatever ingredients they need. You would believe that it could have an effect on uh, foreign direct investment since we are close to well, it seems to be close to the conflict, uh, which is not the case because the conflict is raging like more than 1,000 kilometers from us. But anyway, foreign direct investment did not take a hit. So in 2002 and 2003, we had record years with regard to foreign direct investment. We don't see a problem there. And this is why we think that uh, uh, we are able to get out of this momentary slump, if you will. Our unemployment uh, ratio has not gone up. It's still around 3.9%. I think the two countries are at similar. Yeah, uh, we're, we're, we're uh, creeping up. But... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a, a little, little bit of creeping in, also in Hungary. But all in all, uh, the economy is, is, is pretty robust. Uh, of course... Uh, we are an open market economy like New Zealand. So we rely on the health, I mean, the economic health of our partners. Uh, there is a saying in Hungary that if Germany sneezes, then we, I mean, Hungary catch cold. Catch cold. That's right. At this moment, the German economy has its own problems. Uh, of course, also related to gas prices, oil prices, and the source issue. Yes, we are in the same ship uh, and we hope that all these other countries are making progress and therefore it would have a beneficial effect on the so, Hungarian So economy. what is driving that inflation rate in Hungary then? It's mostly uh, the energy prices. Oh, that is right. So what happened, the energy prices, there were a certain time when it was like more than 100% plus. And, you know, you need energy for everything, moving things around, baking the bread, whatnot. I don't have to explain it. Energy is such an instrumental part of all of our economies. If we have a major problem with the prices there, it immediately translates to higher inflation everywhere. Mm. 
mm. and higher prices everywhere. That is the biggest issue. We don't see the end of that crisis at this moment. Actually, we might have some further difficulties, not only in Hungary, but in Europe especially in the landlocked countries like Hungary, because we don't have ability to get these things through ports and so on and so on. But I am sure that we will be able to solve it. So mm. the, the, the situation is not as tragic as it seemed to be at the beginning of the conflict. Mm. Now, we skirted around the borders earlier on. The borders, and... yes. yes. <laughs> I'm not going to let that one go because I, no, no. I do find this quite fascinating because let's face it, there is another conflict going on and that conflict is also not only being played out in the Middle East, but I really do have a concern that that conflict is going to spill over into Europe because mm. of the very free immigration and movement into Europe um, yes. Yes. over the last sort of 10 years, especially. Hungary has made sure that the integrity of their borders has remained strong. Indeed, but uh, there is an interesting explanation for that. Let me give it a try. It will sound legalistic, but it's very interesting. As you know, within the European Union, there is an inner circle, which we call the Schengen area. And countries within the Schengen area, they don't have border crossings uh, on their borders within the Schengen area, right? So if there is a New Zealander coming to Berlin and decides to visit Hungary, he or she would jump up on a plane in Berlin, arrive to Budapest in two hours, and then he or she does not have to take out his or her passport, right? There is no border control. It basically functions like one country within the Schengen internal area. And it's extremely important because this is the, the whole idea of the European Union, that you have free movement of goods, free movement of people, and free movement of services. Now, in order to maintain that free movement within the Schengen area, there is a responsibility on the countries that have external Schengen borders to keep the external borders controlled, under control, right? So basically, unless you know who gets into the European Union, you cannot maintain this kind of free movement of goods, persons, and services. This is the crux of it. And of course, Hungary, on the southern border, have a couple of countries that are not part of the European Union, namely Serbia and Romania, for example. And of course, we are responsible by European Union law to maintain order on those borders. Now, for 20, 25 years, the European Union had this presumption that since the border crossings are open, nobody in, her, in his or her right mind would come through the green borders, right? Why would they? That presumption, if you will, uh, went up in flames in 2015 when half a million migrants trampled through Hungary into uh, the European Union. So, of course, I mean, based on the European Union regulations, the only uh, thing that we were able to do and we were mandated to do is to secure the green borders. And this is why we have built a uh, defense on the green border with these countries on our external Schengen area. Of course, we are getting a lot of criticism for that, <laughs> which is paradoxical. But I am just making this point to, to make New Zealanders understand that we are actually doing it in order to fulfill one of our European Union obligations.
I wouldn't feel bad about that. I even think Biden is thinking of building a fence now. No, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, it's amazing. It's amazing what millions just flooding across that border will do, won't it, to just solidify things up. Yeah. Right. And, and and you know, they, they also have their own problem with 12 million people and, and, and the number is grow number is growing. Of course, you are right. But I think also the na- the notion or the, the approach is slightly and slowly changing in Europe. A lot of people started to understand that this social experiment is not the best one. You cannot have people come into your country without any kind of regulation and then solve the problem. This is what we discussed that uh, already 20, 25 years ago, we have seen an issue in countries, I don't want to name names, in, in some Western countries, where uh, it was very clear for us that they cannot integrate the influx of uh, migrants. They have major problems uh, and they are much, as I have said, much richer and they have much more capacity than in, than in Hungary. We have already seen at that time that this is not the, the road that we want to take, so to speak, and we have to find some alternative uh, uh, solutions. Now, we have a problem within the European Union that we have to find some kind of a, a modus operandi, some kind of a, a compromise around this. And I, I can tell you, Marie, that there were a couple of cases when the European Union was able to create those kind of compromises. One was, for example, the Eurozone, when you have a couple of countries who felt that they are prepared for a common currency, right? And there are some other countries who think that they still need some time to get into the Eurozone. And it worked out pretty well. That is the same with, uh, just to touch on another issue that might be interesting for New Zealanders, a nuclear policy. Uh, I'm not talking about the military use of uh, nuclear energy. I'm talking about the civilian use. Right, exactly. Some of the European Union countries, they expressly denied the opportunity, like New Zealand, to have any kind of of nuclear power generation. And there are a couple of other countries who think that in order to become carbon neutral, in order to fight climate change and so on and so on, you have to have nuclear in your energy mix. And there you, I mean, the European Union also found some some kind of a a compromise. And, And this is my fervent hope that when it comes to migration, the European Union will will again find some kind of a compromise where we let countries who want to go down uh, with this social experiment and continue the social experiment to continue that while they don't necessarily uh, force that position on us. And this is the important thing. We don't have any problem with other countries trying to find a solution for their own societal problems, but we don't want to follow suit and we don't want to be forced to follow suit. And another issue which is closer to values, and of course you have this issue coming up uh, more frequently, is sexual education and gender issues. There again, there are a couple of countries that are more progressive than Hungary, including New Zealand, where you have the ability to have same-sex marriages, right? We have no problem with it. I mean, please do so. If this is what your voters want, if this is what your society wants, please do that. that. But we also want to keep our freedom to decide uh, on these issues on our own. So, for example, in Hungary, 
uh, our constitution actually says that a marriage is between a man and a woman. And a mother is a, a woman and the father is a man. This is in our constitution. So I don't really see the European Union role in this area. But of course, there is this growing debate in that sense. Now we have been taken to court, the European Union's court, because of our law that prohibits sexual and gender education in schools. So how would they then have the authority to be able to do that? Surely that fits within your own sovereignty of Hungary. That's, that's a very good question. And, and this is how we feel about it. And you know, the whole debate is a little bit contorted, if you will. We have the understanding, and I think this is the same here in New Zealand, that certain programs, for example, in TVs or in TV shows or, or in radio that are not age appropriate, right? You basically just don't broadcast them during daytime. Mm -hmm. So if we have that understanding, why on earth we cannot accept the fact that school is not the place to have, for the same age people, school is not the place to have uh, this kind of sexual and gender education. And, you know, here again, the conservative values, of course, I understand that New Zealand thinks about it a little bit differently. We think that it is the role of the family to take care of these very sensitive and very personal issues. And it's not the role of the school to get into gender education and sexual education. The European Commission uh, started this lawsuit uh, against Hungary, which is perfectly fine. Uh, let me say this, uh, because I think about the European Union as a club, where if I am a club member, there is a certain requirement with regard to how I behave. And if the club thinks that I somehow violated the rules and regulations, there should be some kind of a board that would adjudicate uh, these kind of situations. So that's quite fine. I will come back to the sovereignty issue because that is interesting. Uh, the interesting phenomenon that we have seen that when this loss, lawsuit started, 15 European Union countries joined the lawsuit against Hungary. And there was a big, there, it, it was big news. It was everywhere that 15 European Union countries joined the lawsuit against Hungary, thereby assumption Hungary should, should be wrong, right? And other 12 countries did not join the lawsuit. <laughs> that, you know, that already should say something about this. But then uh, the other issue is why on earth countries gang up on another country? If there is already a, a legal case, which will be adjudicated, right? And which will be decided through the necessary procedures. How does it help develop any kind of European Union unity? I mean, we have this wonderful saying in Europe, it's the motto of the European Union that it's unity by diversity, right? So it seems to me that this motto does not necessarily work in this case. It's uh, not really unity by diversity, but it's my way or the highway, which is a de definitely a different concept. Well, and and you course, sort of left that 30 years ago, so why would you want to go back to it now? That's, that's, that's a very good point. Uh, that's a very good point. It's, it's amazing that you have said that. The first time when I felt that something is wrong, personally, was at the time of Brexit, when already Brexit should have been a warning shot. You see, one of the richest, more capable European country, Great Britain, thinking that it would be better off outside of the European Union, right? 
So that should be a major warning shot. That would be the time when people should take two steps back uh, and take a deep, deep breath and, and see what we have done mm-hmm. and how we move forward. Uh, and it didn't happen. Actually, what, what happened was the contrary. We have seen an even higher urge to centralize things, which is, I think, not the best answer to, to these, kind of, these kind of things. Uh, coming back to the sovereignty issue, you are right. We don't think that the European Union has anything to legislate in this area. These issues are about the societal values these issues are about the future of your nation, right? And this should be under your purview or in your purview to decide on. Now, intriguingly, this lawsuit has been brought against us based on the uh, some kind of a violation of, of the free movement of services, which I, I have not yet understood. I, I have not yet <laughs> wrapped my head around it. But of course, look, we will we will answer the, the the charges and we will try to find a solution in this regard. But coming back to your excellent point, yes, it doesn't feel like a club. It doesn't feel like a club. It, sometimes it feels that it's more like uh, the system that we have uh, that we have left behind. More importantly, issues like migration, issues like family policy, issues like education, gender. By the way, education is firmly in the purview of the national <laughs> the national jurisdiction. So these issues are not legal issues. These issues are the most important issues with regard to the, the, the future of the European Union. So I, I don't think personally that these issues can be solved in courts. They will have to be solved. We have to get together within the European Union but not by bringing countries in front of courts. The irony that I have, though, is that you look at, because you've also, we haven't even gotten on to the universities yet, because your prime minister came back for a second set of terms right? with a supermajority. He put his big boy pants on and he was had quite a radical change and re, you know, rewrote your constitution and looked at all those values that... yes that the people felt that they wanted restored in their own country. I mean, in a way, it was your own Brexit internally, wasn't it? It was your nationhood saying, this is who we are, this is who we want to be, and your Prime Minister led with that and sort of got rid of the last vestiges of that communist and then socialist regime and set about restoring Hungarian nationhood and sovereignty. This is my sort of bird's eye view looking from what I've read. You know, you're starting to get really good successes. Surely somebody like Ursula von der Leyen should be on the phone going, yo, Victor, stuff seems to be working over there. What are you doing in Hungary that we should be looking at here in the European Union? And yet they just seem to be doubling down on their social experiment. Interesting points that you are raising. Uh, coming back to your choice of words, Brexit, I have to emphasize that we are the biggest fans of the European Union. Whether we have debates with regard to the future of the European Union and how we want to see it shaped, it's a different matter. We have very strong viewpoints on that. Uh, having said that, we really want to stay within the European Union, and we really want to see the European Union being successful. Because if the European Union is successful, we are also successful. Uh, there is basically no alternative for a 450 million market. It's just an enormous power uh, that a country of 10 million would never have. Uh, 
So this is why we say that uh, yes, we would like to uh, we would like to uh, see the European Union uh, succeed. When it comes to asserting our sovereignty, you are right. We really, I mean, this Hungarian government at this moment really thinks that the Lisbon Treaty uh, creates a very clear division of labor between national jurisdictions, mixed jurisdictions, and European Union jurisdictions, and we are happy to work with that. We don't want to see more powers ceded to uh, Europe. We don't want to see the further federalization of the European Union, partially because of the fact that we don't think that it is a viable alternative. This is a viable vision with countries that have so many different characteristics. I talked about the Central European countries having a completely different set of ideas than the Western countries and so on and so on. I think what the Orban government realized was that actually the the voters of the different European Union countries are getting less and less comfortable with how the European Union works. Okay, and of course, one of the one of the glaring examples was Brexit. But as I have said, I have spent too much time in the United States. Uh, there is a wonderful research institute that deals with uh, European Union issues, an American research institute. It's called Pew Research Center, and a couple of years ago, they have uh, had a I would say a groundbreaking uh, uh, study on popular sentiments with regard to Europe. And of course, I don't have time to, to talk about it in detail, but basically they started to talk about the so-called double disconnect. So basically what your research institute was talking about was that due to a couple of factors, like how the European Union handled the financial crisis in 2008 and after that, and also the migration crisis in 2016 and after, they were less and less confident in the fact that the European Union organizations are serving them, which would be their task. And then, this is the double disconnect, they also felt that their own government is not really doing its job, within the European Union and also protecting them when they need some kind of a protection. And I think this is what the Orban government understood, that as long as you are within the boundaries of the club, if you will, if you play within the rules, you still should have the ability and maneuvering room and the national jurisdiction to stand up for values and principles that you believe in And you should be able to get respect and acceptance if you are also accepting the other country's different point of views. And I think this is what the Orban government wants to achieve within the European Union. Uh, This is the balance that we would like to see. And as I have said many, many times, the European Union was the strongest when they had some kind of a unified decision, some kind of a compromise, and then let the countries do their own implementing jobs and and so on and so on. This is what we are hoping for. And I think this is what is the uniqueness of the Orban government uh, at this moment. The government really believes in these values and principles and definitely it is not shy to to make it known. Uh, Again, I think we don't want to be you know, revolutionaries or torchbearers 
or whatnot. Uh, if, if people like talking about Urs- Ursula von Leiden, if some of the countries would like to take a look at what we do with regard to family policy, what we do with regard to supporting schools, education, independent education, and so on and so on, we are very happy to sit down and converse with them and enter into a discussion. We don't want them necessarily to follow us, okay? We don't want them to change their constitution and make sure that marriage is only between a man and a woman. The only thing that we want is that our position is also respected. Yeah. And I think that is the important thing. And now, sort of in a way that's, I mean, we could keep talking for hours, but I know that we have limited time. But that in a way also brings it back full circle now to New Zealand, because here we are, you are the ambassador here, we're about to, we are rotating government, so you'll get a whole new set of politicians to break in, Jolt. Are those the sorts of conversations that you have with those in governance in New Zealand? You share your experiences uh, that you have within Hungary, and then they sort of share their experiences here in New Zealand, and it, and it's a sharing of ideas and sort of planning and experiences to actually help both strengthen both nations as a whole, sort of like a combined learning experience? Uh, yes and no, if you will. Uh, I am always happy to talk about the Hungarian policies when I am asked, especially when there are some questions about the validity of those principles and policies and so on and so on. And I am eager to share uh, these ideas when I am asked. Okay, But frankly speaking, we have a, a plethora of, of other issues that we have to tackle. Uh, these are actually opportunities, which is just fascinating. Uh, Just to give you a couple of examples, as you know, New Zealand and the European Union has entered into this free trade agreement. It will come into force next year, hopefully the first half of next year. Uh, New Zealand just joined the Horizon Europe program, which is the biggest research and development program on earth, Mm -hmm. uh, administered Mm -hmm. by the European Union. And you also put together the so-called New Zealand leg or the New Zealand pillar of the Enterprise uh, Europe network. So companies from both countries will have a matchmaking mechanism uh, to come together. And on my side, on a bilateral level, uh, we will have the 50th anniversary of the establishment of our diplomatic relations uh, in 2024. And also Hungary will have the European Union presidency in the second half of Uh, 2024, an interesting year. So we really hope that when it comes to economy, trade, uh, foreign direct investment, university cooperation, research and development cooperation, we can take this relationship to a new level. And this is what I am working on. This is the focus of my work. So basically, uh, these kind of discussions uh, that we are having right now, for example, with you, is me stepping out of the treadmill, if you will. Yeah. Uh, uh, the, kind of the, the, the interesting discussions uh, where I can speak a little bit uh, freer on subjects that do not necessarily come up when I talk to ministries and colleagues in the administration. No, well, there's going to be certainly interesting times ahead. It has been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for giving your time today. This has been Jolt Hedesave, the ambassador for Hungary. If anyone wants to find more information around some of the stuff that we've talked about today, or what are like in terms of resources about Hungary, I've got this excellent article that was written by Christopher Rufo, which I used, um, which we will make sure that we have available for people if they want to download that. Is there anywhere else that you suggest that they look in terms of 
sort of doing their own research to if they want to visit Hungary or they want to know a little bit more about what goes on there from a day-to-day basis? Oh, yes, and thank you very much for this opportunity to have a little bit of a shout-out. I always say that if you want to get the facts about Hungary, you might want to go to the source. So we have a homepage that is very simple. It's called About Hungary. If you want to see what the government is doing and uh, why it is doing what it is doing, uh, that is one of the best uh, homepage that I can offer. And the other is, of course, as we had talked about it, we have open border crossings. Uh, We would be happy to have more New Zealand uh, tourists and people who do business in Hungary. If you want to get a general idea of it, what you can do, and, and how you can do it. There is another very important uh, homepage. The link is Visit Hungary. So about Hungary and Visit Hungary. If you want to get kind of unfiltered facts about Hungary, please use those. Thank you so much. And Marie, thank you very much. It has been a treat uh, being with you. Oh, it has been a wonderful treat to be with you as well. This is Counterculture here on Reality Check Radio. Don't disappear. More great content still here to come. You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. Reality Check Radio.